down with that. That was perfect. I owe her five dollars. If you are a child in here, if you are a kid, we want to dismiss you to go have fun without us. Kids, you are dismissed to go and rock out. I think it's like movie day or something. There's popcorn. I'll be there in five minutes. That sounds fun. Parents are sneaking out going, wait a minute. If you're a guest with us today, I want to say welcome. Thank you for being with us. Thank you for joining us here at Covenant Church. We are a a family and a community, and those are things that grow and that change. And so uh, if this is your first time or this would be one of your first times, uh, this is also one of my first times. So uh, I'm relatively new here as well. Uh, I still feel like a guest sometimes, and I still have fresh eyes on this place. And so thank you for joining us. Thank you for being uh, a part of what we do here and for trying out this family. If this is a family that you would want to be a part of, if this is a community you say, you know what, this feels like home to me. Uh, we have a way for you to get to uh, plug in, and there are these little cards. It's the super simplest thing in the world. There's these little cards on the back table there. No one's going to uh, force one on you. No one's going to ask you to do anything strange. But if you wanted to fill one of these out and drop it in the little basket uh, right on that table, uh, we would love to be able to call you, email you, plug you in, and figure out how we can serve you best as uh, we do this life together. As our thank you for that, as churches are uh, want to do these days, we have these really nice white coffee mugs back there, uh, super nice. Uh, you're going to want one of those. And so if you uh, drop this in the basket, your reward for that is to uh, take one of those with you and take that home and enjoy that. Uh, if you've been a member here for 20 years and you've been taking mugs every week, we have an idea and we're putting cameras up, okay? What we're doing for the next few uh, weeks, we have four weeks left in our series. We're doing uh, Dwell, 30 days in Psalm 23. We started last week with a sermon on the provision of God, the total provision of God. This week we're talking about peace, and yet as we go through it, I want to make uh, known to you the resource that we have developed to walk through this together. So oftentimes you come to church on Sunday, you enjoy what you hear or not, and then you go home and you wait six more days and you come back and do it again. Uh, The design here is that you would not be able to avoid God's word. And so what we have is a 30-day devotional that goes along with the sermon series. This is a picture of the physical copy. Uh, You can get these on Amazon.com. You look up uh, Psalm 23 devotional. You'll find it immediately. We also have it through our website. Um, If you go there, there's a link to it. So that's uh, as simple as it goes. Um, but what we've done on Sundays, uh, the ebook version of the devotional is free. And so if you went on Amazon today and you looked up Psalm 23 devotional, you'd find it. It's free. So you can read that on a Kindle app, on a Kindle device, on a computer, anything that's connected, you can read it. You can figure it out. Um, and if you can't, then you can email me and we'll help you. But uh, that's one way to do it. The other thing is we're putting it on the Covenant Church Facebook every single day. So the goal is that no one should have to pay for uh, what's in here unless you really, really love paper. Um, otherwise, you can start uh, Facebook every morning at 6 a.m. Monday through Saturday at post that day's devotional. So you can read it. You can soak in that. You can share it with someone who you, you know, everybody's been on Facebook and you go, gosh, I wish this person would see that. Now you can share it. So we want to make that available to you. Make sure you know about it. Like I said, today we we're talking about peace, total peace. And I think this is an important day uh, in this series. This is actually, I think, the axis of the whole passage of Psalm 23 rests in the scripture we're going to be talking about today. And what we're doing every week is we're reading the whole of Psalm 23. It's only six verses. My goal, uh, secretly, is that everybody will be forced to memorize Psalm 23, whether you like it or not, just because we're going to read it so often. And so what I want to do is read it uh, with you now. And so uh, we'll put it up on the screens, but Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. 
Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You have anointed my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and loving kindness will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. These are the very words of God. This is uh, Psalm 23, a psalm of the good shepherd A psalm of an active God. And if we look at it, what we see in verse 2 and 3, which we're going to focus on today, he makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul and he guides me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. That's what we're focusing on today, verse 2 and verse 3. And when I see that, the thing that comes to my mind is that we are an anxious people. Americans are an anxious people. Four million Americans every year Google hope and how to find it. Imagine going to the internet to say, how do I find hope? 22 million Americans are addicted to drugs or alcohol. 21 million Americans struggle with depression, 39,000 of whom will commit suicide in any given year. That's a lot. 40 million Americans, it is estimated, would admit to feeling trapped or crippled in anxiety. There's not a person in this room that doesn't know what it feels like to have acute anxiety in a moment. Sometimes it's trauma that brings it. Sometimes it's life change. It's moving across the country. We felt that. These are things that create it. And yet for many of us, we feel anxiety generally. We feel acute anxiety daily. And what we have to recognize is there's a reason we feel it and there's a way out of it. What I would say is every day is a war for control. Here's the confession of the day for me. I want control probably more than anything else on earth. If I'm being honest, I want control more than anything else on earth. And it shows up in a thousand different ways. Have you ever been uh, in your car and you find yourself talking to the other drivers? And you're not on the phone, right? And you're sitting at a light and you're like, it's green. Come on, it's green. Or you're sitting at the stop sign and wondering why, you know, there's not like a train coming. Can you hurry up? It's time to get somewhere. I'm coming from a place where traffic was everywhere. And so uh, we would just sit and in my head, I would just yell at everybody else for being such idiots, right? It's all your fault. I'm in traffic. Until somebody kindly pointed out that I am traffic because I'm part of the problem. And I see it. I was talking to somebody just this week, and they said, you know what? You'll, you'll like the no traffic thing in, in Bowling Green. You'll like the no traffic thing for a little bit until you realize that you'll get used to it, and then you'll be bothered when there's like three cars at a stop sign. <laughs> and this week at Poe and Haskins, I'm like, why doesn't this light ever change? <laughs> Who is coming through here? Why do I feel this way? Because I want control. I want the light to be green for me because I have places to go. And so we can all do a self-diagnostic and figure out, is that what we're really about? That's where anxiety comes from. Almost all of our anxiety comes from a desire for greater control. And think about it this way. I've yet to meet the couple uh, that isn't in a war over the air conditioning. The woman is always cold. The man is always sweating or vice versa. She's crying at him because she has to have a blanket on and it's the summer and he's looking at her like, I'm sweating, would you please? And you're secretly going and adjusting the thermostat behind each other's backs, right? There is enough poking and elbowing right now that I know this is not just in my house. Uh, 
It's worse in the car because you're in an enclosed little space. She's shivering. I'm sweating profusely. The children are crying. Babies are wailing. It just becomes a thing, right? So, so if you have a relatively new car, this was a revelation to me. I didn't even know this existed. We got a relatively new car. Dual zone climate control? This is revolutionary. This has not only satisfied generations of like control freak Americans, but it's probably saved thousands of marriages where she can just hit the button and now it's warm over there and it's cold over here. This is perfect. This is what we need. Why do we want this? What is that about? Why do we have dual zone climate control in our cars? Because what we really want is control. At my base, I want to control my environment. I want to control my temperature. I don't want you to be in control. I want to control it. A lack of control creates anxiety. Uh, my wife, when we first got married, one of our bigger fights was, was she did not trust me driving. I didn't know it at the time. I hadn't done my research, but she had been through several major traumatic um, accidents in cars. So she had like legitimate psychological trauma that she brought forward. So being in a car created anxiety in her. And so I'm, I'm driving. And she's like, you're going to miss that. You're going to hit the curb. You're gonna, and I would be like, you're going to drive me insane. That's what's going to happen. And we'd go back and forth, and, and, and in my head, I couldn't figure it out, because I'm like, she can see, my hands are on the wheel, she can see the speedometer, she can see everything around us, and yet something in her doesn't feel settled. Well, it's partly her history she brings forward, right? But it's partly a lack of control. She's still anxious in the car, and she's so much better now, like she can fall asleep um, on a dime now. It's great. But it took us years for her to learn to trust me driving. And this is, this is interesting to me because last year in the summer, it was our 10th anniversary, we took a trip to Jamaica for our 10th anniversary. So we get on the catamaran. They give us the catamaran tour around the Caribbean, right? And so it's a boat bigger than the stage with a giant sail and there's like just people everywhere and there's just rum punch fountains all over the place. And it, it doesn't feel like the safest place in the world. She didn't once ask who was driving. She never even considered who was driving. You know why? Because who cares? Because somebody probably knows what they're doing somewhere. So she has no anxiety on the rum punch fueled catamaran. And yet she has great anxiety with her husband who means well and would do anything to protect her. Why? The only time a lack of control creates anxiety is when we don't trust the one who is in control. The only time a lack of control creates anxiety is when we don't trust the one who's in control. So in Jamaica, she doesn't, she's out of sight, out of mind. I don't know. Somebody knows what they're doing. I trust them. They figure this, they do this thing every day. But with me, maybe he's going to miss the turn. Maybe he's going to go too fast. Maybe there's a deer coming out of the, maybe, you never know. The only time a lack of control creates anxiety is when we don't trust the one who's in control. And this is what leads into the myth of a distant cosmic grandfather God. When you and I have acute anxiety in our lives, it is because we do not trust the one who is ultimately in control. Because you and I, we, we would affirm in our head that there is something greater than us in control of this whole thing. That the sun and the moon and the earth and the, the fact that we live and breathe is not relying on us. And yet, do we trust that? Do we trust that God or do we hold God off as a mythic, distant, cosmic grandfather who really isn't involved in our lives? If God is distant and unconcerned, then we should be anxious. And yet he's not. Paul says in Colossians 1, 
verse 13 through 17, he says, For God, he, God rescued us from the domain of darkness, rescued us. And he transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. He transferred us. In whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things, underline it, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. So let's get this straight. God created all things. In him all things are held together. And so let's do a little uh, thought experiment here. Let's see if we can make this real. Everybody, um, we're about, I'm about to ask you to take a breath, okay? So get, get that, that pre-breath out that you do when someone says to hold your breath. Now on three, I'd like everybody to just take a big, deep breath, okay? One, two, three. All right. You are not the author of that breath. You are not the author of that breath. A couple weeks ago, we talked in Ezekiel 37 that God gives breath to man. That it's God's spirit that makes dead bones live. God holds all things together. We read that and we go, yeah, that's true. And yet the practical reality for our lives is that we do not breathe or weep or hope without his gracious permission. This is the God we believe in, a God who is imminently and infinitely in control. He rescued us. He transferred us. Who? He did. God is an active God. He makes me lie down. He leads me to still waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in the paths of righteousness. We believe in an active God who created life and holds all things together. We believe that. The question I'm asking today is, do we trust him? We believe it, but do we trust him? See, I think this is the axis of this whole passage. The true restoration is on display here. This is scripture says, he restores my soul. The question is, how? An act of God displays his immense goodness as the good shepherd. He says, he makes me lie down in green pastures. He makes me. We live in a get-it-while-you-can society. It's back-to-school sale season, right? Anybody done back-to-school shopping yet? A couple people. Most of you are waiting, not procrastinating. You're just being patient. Good for you. Back-to-school sale. Stuff is on sale. Even stuff that isn't related to school, Right? So like Home Depot's got leaf blowers on sale because you totally need that to go into the fourth grade. And yet, that's when we go do some shopping, isn't it? Memorial Day, we're buying mattresses. Labor Day, I'll take some of that. New car, never thought about it, but it is truck month, okay. And we think about those things and we're like, I guess I should do this. I love you, you know that, right? That's my wife right there. Uh, husbands, I'm just talking to husbands here. Have you, has your spouse ever come home from a shopping trip and, um, and asked you if you wanted to see what she got for the day? Just nod with me. Has this happened? Have you ever, you've never done this because you're not stupid, but have you ever made the mistake of saying, but you have a pair of boots that look like that already? <laughs> you already have a shirt that color, right? Hey, don't do that. If you've never done that, don't do that. It didn't go real well. But, but what's the response? When you say, but you have a pair of boots like that, the response from the wife is always, but they were. Oh, we can be done. I feel better. 
They were on sale. I had to buy them. They were such a good deal. What if mine gets stolen or lost? Or what if aliens come and take my boots? Now I have backup boots. You can't pass up backup boots for that price. They were on sale. Why are we so intrigued by something on sale? Get it while you can. And lest we uh, get the guys off the hook here, some of you guys got like 12 leaf blowers in your garage right now, okay? This is part of the addictive behavior. I've been offered snowblowers from like 12 people already. I got like six snowblowers, so you can just borrow any of them that you want. Why do you have six snowblowers? Well, there's a spring break sale and it's a whole thing. And Okay. We buy stuff because it's there to be bought. Because we're afraid we won't have what we need. And deep down, we suffer with scarcity. We asked last week, what would you, uh, what would you do if you knew you would have what you needed? How would you go through life if you knew you would have what you needed all the time? And so what we realize is as we think about provision from last week, God provides all things, that brings us forward to this week. If you knew you had what you needed, you wouldn't be anxious anymore, thinking that you might not have what you need. So provision leads to peace. And that's opposed to the greed of scarcity. The reason I have 12 leaf blowers, the reason I have 40 pairs of boots, the reason I keep collecting things is I have scarcity in my soul. I am worried that maybe, just maybe, I'm not going to have what I need down the road. And says, he makes me lie down in green pastures, which is to say he brings me to a place of abundance and he says, look, I got you. That is what God is doing with our everyday. He's bringing me to green pastures and saying, you couldn't eat all this in your lifetime if you tried. To which the sheep goes, yes. So you and I have to start our days going, I am in green pastures. I could not consume all that God has laid out for me if I tried. And his abundance is greater than I can imagine. And so who am I to live a life going, what if I don't have what I need? And since he leads me beside quiet waters, this is interesting to me because the Western mind sees an abstract metaphor. You and I are Western thinkers. Still waters, that's an abstract metaphor. I'm thinking of like a a painting, you know, a Christian painting of, of a smooth stream and there's a little house with a chimney. And I'm like, oh, that seems like a nice image for me. This is not an abstract metaphor. This is a very specific thing. The Eastern mind sees something very practical in this. He leads me besides quiet waters is this. If you are a shepherd and you take your sheep and you have them drink from a fast-flowing stream, several things become problems. First, if your sheep takes one step too far in to drink, it's gone. And you got a wool sweater floating down the river, right? Not good. Dangerous to be at a fast-moving stream. The second thing, some of you are active in water sports. You kayak, you whitewater raft, you go fishing. When you're in a really still part of the stream, you can hear everything. But when you're near a fast-moving stream, when there's rapids and rocks and things are gurgling and bubbling, you can't hear anything. All you hear is that noise. And so for a sheep to go to a place, a fast-moving stream, the sheep is not going to be able to hear a predator either. So you immediately start to put this thing that I held as this abstract metaphor. And for a shepherd, this is a really practical piece of advice. The sheep do best by still waters. Why? There's no risk of them falling in and floating away. There's no risk of them not hearing the predator creeping up behind them. This is actually a place of incredible protection. And so peace, as we'll see next week, also comes from protection. It's the difference between a vacation and a retreat. 
in America, we have this term, uh, this phrase that we use. We hear it all the time. You've probably said it before. You get back from a, a vacation. You get back from a, a weekend away or a, a week at Disney World or wherever you go. And you come back and people say, how was it? And you say what? You say, I need a vacation from my vacation. We've all heard somebody said that. Most of us, if we really were pressed, would admit we've said it before. How was your vacation? How was your week away? <sighs> I could really use another week away. That's a lot of work. You can take a day at Cedar Point and it's equal parts joyful and stressful. For every giggle, there's a line and a cost and a drive and a stress. So how do you feel when you get home exhausted? Contrast that with a retreat where you go away for a day and you're almost bored. There's so much silence. This is the picture that God is painting through the psalmist. I lead you beside still waters. You have space to hear the voice of the shepherd. Since I lead you to true rest, to restoration for your soul. Restoration for your soul happens away from the rat race of your every day. It happens away from that. It is there by the still waters that he restores our souls. It is inside out healing. So many of us scrap around looking for outside in ways of becoming whole again. It's a massage here. It's a self-help book there. If I just have this or that, maybe I'll feel whole again. Maybe the anxiety will, and it doesn't work that way. The psalmist knows that there's no such thing as an outside-in healing. It always goes inside out, that it's the restoration of a soul that leads to the safety for the physical individual. And we talked about voices last week. Voices are important. Whose voice do you listen to? In the flurry of noise of everyday life, of the busy stream that we walk by every day, the stream of life that never seems to stop moving. Do you have the space, the time, and the ability to hear the voice of the shepherd? Psalm 62.1, another song, psalm of David, he says, My soul waits in silence for God only. From him is my salvation. Literally, the reason I read this to you, literally, uh, the translation would say, only toward God my soul is silence. That's what the literal translation of that uh, psalm would be. He would say, only toward God my soul is silence, which we wouldn't say in English because it sounds a little bit awkward. And yet that's the literal translation, which is for us really important because my soul waits in silence for, from God only is, is nice. But when we say only toward God is my soul silenced, we have a whole different understanding of where peace comes from. That God isn't an option for finding peace in our lives. God isn't an option for reducing anxiety. God is the only place where our souls truly find silence. And so if we are not spending time with God, if we don't know the voice of the shepherd, then we will lack peace. How many of us need to silence our souls? We come to total peace. Total peace is found in following the leader. And willful disobedience leads to danger. If you have small children, you know this to be true. The reason you want your kids to obey you while walking beside the busy street, willful disobedience leads to danger. This is true for us as adults in relation to God as our Father as well. The greatest enemy of peace in my life is me. The greatest enemy of peace in my life is me. And this goes right in line with the uh, inside-out portion there is no set of circumstances and situations in this world that can steal my peace or create anxiety. The greatest enemy of peace in my life is me. Why? 
Most of our sin can be traced back to a war for control with God. Most of our sin can be traced back to a war for control with God. I want, I want to work my finances out this way. I know what that says, but I want to do it this way. Or I want to use my time like this. I, I know I should do that maybe, but I want to, this, is what, this is what I want. Or you know, I have relationships with those kind of people. I don't want to associate with those people. I want to live this way. Most of our sin can be traced back to a war for control with God. I want to live for me. That would mean that the only way to peace, the only way to ending the war is then to surrender. He guides me in the paths of righteousness, says the scripture. To step off the path of righteousness is to step into the trajectory of trouble. We had some friends when I was in high school that had these big trucks with the big mud tires and and they'd go off-roading. It was a thing. I don't know if it's a thing here, but in Texas, people just go off-roading. I don't know what they do. They just find mud and off they go. It was a lot of fun to have these friends that had these big trucks. A, because I didn't have these big trucks and I have to pay their gas bill. But B, sometimes you got to ride and it was fun. Off-roading is a great way to have fun. It's also a really easy way to break an axle. And we did more than one of those. The same is true in our walk with God. Going off the path of righteousness that he steps forward, that, that can be fun. That can be interesting. But it's a really great way to break an axle. God has made his general path known. That's it. God's made the path to righteousness known. He invites us to step into the stream with him and know it. People say, but I can't hear God. I don't know. I can read that, but I just I don't ever hear God. To which I would say that God is often silent as long as we are not. You can't have a conversation if you do all the talking. Eugene Peterson said it this way. He said, all of the oceans in the world cannot sink a ship unless it gets inside of it. Similarly, all of the trouble in the world cannot sink your soul unless it gets inside. And so are you caring for the soul first? Are you operating in an inside-out place of peace where you seek first his kingdom, you seek first his word, you seek his path of righteousness, and from there allow the world to fall into place? The greatest place of peace is in the presence of the good shepherd. He says, for his name's sake. He guides me in the path of righteousness for his name's sake. Which is to tell us that a me-centric world is an anxious place. Why? Because you and I were not designed to bear the weight of the world. We weren't designed for it. The reason you feel stress when you carry more weight than you were designed for is because you're carrying more weight than you were designed for. It's a little bit reductionist. It's a little bit simple, but it's a little bit true. Total peace is found in the will of God. It requires a God-centric world. And when we are about God's glory, it seems to work. When we're about our own glory, what we recognize is it never satisfies because I cannot fill up my own glory. I am a break waiting to happen. I'm a mistake waiting to happen. I'm a bad decision waiting to happen. And all of a sudden, my glory tank is empty and I got to go right back to work feeling significant again, feeling important again, trying to get other people to like me, getting more approval, gaining more status, making more money, whatever it is that makes me feel like I'm something. 
And yet when we wash all of that away and we say, God, I'm here to live for your glory and add to me whatever else there is, but I'm here for you, that's doable. We live in his world. We rest in the peaceful arms of an active father. And so as long as we wrestle for control, we lack peace. And yet an active shepherd is radically in control. Our God is totally unsurprised. There is not a circumstance in our life. There's not a tragedy that unfolds. There's not a blink of an eye or a single breath that you and I take that surprises God. More than any of that, he is ruthlessly in love with us. This is the God who sent his only son so that you and I might know peace. Who said, you lack peace and I am the only way to provide it and so I will give you my son and he will die for you. And in doing so, in taking the penalty for your sin, he will do away with what you were to take on. And then in rising, he will destroy death entirely. He will pave the way to life for any who believe. And so there is no greater security, there's no greater certainty, there's no greater peace than living the life where you know that you know that you know that you are a child of God. Greg sings the song, No longer a slave to fear, I'm a child of God. His little girl runs up to him during the prayer. That's the path to peace. The path to peace is not working harder. It's not another book. It's not another program. It's not another leg up on the 